Good morning. How's everybody this morning? Gorgeous day, isn't it? Wow. Fantastic. So my name is Gina Sharp, and uh, welcome to this beautiful, bright Sunday where we're going to sit together and do some contemplation together. Um, we like at New York Insight to acknowledge that the third refuge is Sangha, which is the community of beings who, with whom we practice. So if you would introduce yourself to as many people as possible. And if, and if you're new here or I've not met you, please come and say hello to me. Great, lovely to meet you, Gina. Where, do, where are you from? And you've come here before, but just not here. Oh. Your particular work recommended to me as a teacher by a friend of mine, Amma. Oh, I don't know. Coming. 
Sorry, I'm sniffling. I've got it looks like I've got some kind of allergy, but that's okay. We'll manage somehow. So um, there are quite a few people that, that came to say hello that have either not meditated before or have meditated on their own with not much instruction. So I'll give more instruction than usual this morning. Um, could you close that door for me, please? Michelle, thank you. And I just want to acknowledge um, our volunteers, uh, Julie in the back and, and Michelle here, and just thank them for their service and for their uh, willingness to come early on a Sunday morning and set up and support all of us. So thank you, Deep Bows. Hmm. So I'd like you to just take a deep, deep, slow breath in. And a count of four, like one, two, three, four, and then hold it for a moment, and then take a deep breath out, counting again, one, two, three, four. And if you would do that three times, and we do that just to arrive and settle. And you can continue to pay attention to your breath, but let go of the control of it. Let it be a natural breath that comes in and a natural breath that goes out, whether it's long, it's short, it's deep, it's shallow, is okay. There's no need to make the breath a particular way. Our practice of meditation is establishing presence with what is true, not trying to make ourselves be a particular way or to control what happens or even to think that what happens is an interference with your meditation because the practice that we do includes everything, includes whatever is arising in the six senses, which are the five physical senses of eyes, ear, nose, tongue, uh, body, etc., and the sixth sense of the mind, that thoughts arise just as sights and sounds do. So it's most important that we know that our practice is not for getting to a particular state of mind or getting rid of anything that is arising 
but literally to see and to understand. As we pay attention to what is true without our usual judgments or stories or analyses added to what is happening, we allow the mind some space to actually understand how this body-mind-heart organism works. And we may think that we already know, but actually, usually, we are so absorbed in experience that, and our reactions to experience that we mistake the reaction for the experience itself and we bypass the knowing, the understanding, the presence. And this knowing and understanding is not analytic, it's not intellectual, it's actually visceral. So we can start by simply knowing the sounds that are in the room and outside with just listening, but listening not in a way of going out, but actually just knowing how it is to hear. And the sounds may be pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. That's not really our affair. We're not trying to make our experience pleasant or push away what is unpleasant or ignore the neutral. Everything that comes up in our experience while we are sitting is, becomes our object of meditation. And in a moment, I'm going to give you a specific object of meditation, but I'd like you to just, for the time being, just open your awareness to knowing all of the experiences of the six senses. So if a sound is predominant in your experience, what's it like to hear? Just hearing, hearing, hearing. If a bodily sensation arises, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, can you pay attention quite carefully to that sensation and notice it's arising and it's vanishing and how it is while it's here, it may be unpleasant, or we may wish it away and yet we have no control over it. So our, our way of practice is simply to know it. Or perhaps there's an image in the mind or a thought in the mind. Can you know those images and thoughts without our usual story? Just a kind of bare attention that knows thinking without becoming embroiled in or um, caught by whatever the content of the thought is, we can simply know thinking and what it feels like to think. So I'm going to give you a few moments to simply see what's arising in your experience and to just know it. And a way of helping the mind to focus is if it's a sound, you can make a very silent note in the mind of hearing, hearing, hearing. Or if there's a sensation in the body, tightness, vibration, 
heat, cold, whatever that sensation is. So that, and the, the, the note is not so much to pin it down, but simply to keep the mind focused on what is happening. And you'll notice from time to time that there's no predominant sense experience. So perhaps sounds cease for a moment. Or there's no particular sensation in the body. Or no images arising in the mind. In that moment, it's a way of engaging the mind in the present moment is to pay attention to the movement of breath in the body. And usually we start there, but I wanted to give you a flavor of what it's like to open up the experience from the narrow, from a narrow uh, object. <clears throat> but especially if you've not meditated much before, it's very helpful to start with the breath. Just knowing the in-breath, short or long, deep or shallow, rough or smooth, just to know this is an in-breath, this is a long in-breath, and then the out-breath, this is a short out-breath, or this is a deep out-breath. And in this way, if we pay attention in the beginning, simply to the breath. It will help the mind to settle down into the present moment, to let go of its rambling 
and the way in which it catches us. Uh, the texts describe it as a drunken monkey stung by a scorpion, just jumping all over the place. So for meditative uh, presence, we use the breath because it's portable, it's always with us. And we can in any moment bring the whole organism, the mind, the body, and the heart back to the present moment by knowing this breath, right now, this in-breath, and then this out-breath. And we pay attention to the sensations of the breath by putting the attention right between the upper lip and the nostrils where the air comes in and goes out. Or it might be more helpful for you to pay attention at the rising and falling of the belly or the whole breath body. So notice for you what makes the breath most easily accessible to the attention. Is it at the nostrils? Is it at the rising and falling of the belly? Or is it simply the whole body breathing? And once you've chosen a place, let that be the place that you return to every time the attention moves away from the present moment, either from the breath or as you're following the breath, perhaps an experience of one of the senses arises such as a sound being heard and becomes predominant in your experience. It's not a mistake because the attention has gone away from the breath, but we can actually know, oh, that's hearing. Notice the arising of the sound, the vanishing of the sound, and if nothing else is predominant in your experience, returning to the breath. And the attention may wander a thousand times during the next half hour. It's a little less than half an hour that we'll be meditating for in silence. And that's okay. It's not a mistake. It's not a problem. If we actually know that the attention has wandered and we bring it back quite gently and tenderly without self-blame or criticism or judgment. And if we do that quite uh, easily and tenderly, and we're able to notice, even if it's been a while where the mind has been wandering to the past or the future and not being here in the present, if as soon as we realize that, we bring the attention back either to the breath or whatever is predominant in the present moment experience, we will have spent our uh, 40 minutes sitting quite productively and profitably. And notice any experience that is resisted or clung to and see if in the resistance 
we can let go of the resistance, and in the clinging, we can let go of the clinging. So it's the breath, in and out, long or short, deep or shallow, rough or smooth, and any experience that becomes predominant in our attention and pulls us away from the breath. And the labeling of that experience will be very helpful to keep the mind present. So I'm going to be silent now.
you aware of the posture of your body? Is it held with dignity and ease? the mind is getting sleepy, the energy is falling, you can open your eyes if you'd like and just look at a spot in front of you on the floor, letting some light and energy come into the body. If the mind is restless, Give it a wide open field. Don't try to tame it or bring it down into a small space. If the mind is busy, Notice a busy mind. If it's bored, notice boredom. Whatever mind states arise can be known rather than followed. Become interested. After we recognize and accept what is arising, we become interested in what is happening without identifying with it, without thinking this is me. Just knowing thinking or hearing or seeing or tightness, whatever the experience is.
I wonder if there's someone with a question about the instructions or the practice, and it doesn't have to be a beginner's question, if, even if you've been practicing for a while, if you have a question. <coughs> Sometimes you said to, uh, like, with, you said to label something hearing. And sometimes you said something much more specific, like, um, let's say, tingling or pressure. So I wondered if, as, oh, or should that be just feeling? That might be incredible. Yeah. The reason that I use um, more specific language when I talk about sensation is because most of us tend to go to pain which is a concept. We don't feel pain. We feel tightness or heat or tingling or vibration or pressure. Um, so hearing is easier because it's, it's um, you know, it doesn't have that same kind of personal feeling about it. But if it's a sensation arising in the body, we can take that very personally, right? So we just think it's pain and, oh, I want to get out of this pain. So that's why... I, it, it kind of varies, and it was very astute of you to notice. <laughs> does that does that help? Yeah, but now we're thinking of all the things with with all the different sense fields. Well, if you if you were specific with sound, for instance, then you might get all tangled up, mm-hmm. right? So if you were if you thought a car or engine or loud or then you then you start to get tangled up the reason that i use it with sensation is because it's happening in the body and so it feels personal even though it's impersonal because we all feel those same kinds of sensations but the to to notice the precise um uh, sensation in the body also we can notice when it changes because our tendency is when we have some kind of unpleasant, it's not so much with pleasant, but with unpleasant sensation, first of all, we think it's interminable, right? It just feels like it's never, ever going to go away. But if we pay attention to what the sensations are, we begin to notice all of the subtle variations that happen within what we think is, um, you know, a muscle cramp, right? If If you really look at a muscle cramp, you'll see that there's, tightness and then it may loosen and then it may tighten again and loosen. So we've also, one of the ways, one of the um, salutary effects of thinking of, of, of noticing uh, sensation in that way is we do notice its impermanence and we do notice that it comes and goes. Sound, it's easier to notice that it's coming and going. Right? But sensation in the body is a little bit more it's a little bit more complex and feels more personal. So you don't want to, with sound, you're going to get all tangled up in it, and then it's going to disappear, and you're going to not notice that it's disappearing by the time you try to figure out conceptually what the sound is coming from, or whether it's loud or it's soft, you know, so. You're welcome. Thank you for the question. So um, what I'd like to do is about uh, a 15-minute 
walking meditation, so because when the Buddha taught meditation, he taught it in four different postures, sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. We won't do lying down, but we'll do standing and walking, so we'll do three of the four. Um, and we don't do lying down usually when, when we sit together, because then it, people start to snore and things like that. And it gets a little harder. So, uh, how many people have done walking meditation before? Oh my goodness gracious, I was going to give instructions. Um, who needs instructions? Okay, so why don't I let the rest of you go unless you, unless you want to hear them again, and the four of you can come forward, and everybody else, you know, you can walk in here, or you can walk in the small room or in the hallway. So anyone, even if you've done it before, you're welcome to stay for instructions.
So do you have any questions about walking meditation? It really, it's an important practice. It's not just a kind of, oh well, maybe we'll do some walking meditation, but it really is a way of balancing the energy with the sitting meditation. And um, as I was saying to the people that we were giving instructions to, that uh, it not only balances the energy, but it's also a bridge into life that we begin to understand that this training of the mind is ongoing, um, whether in all four postures, as the Buddha put it. And today I'm going to, I, I had two different topics. I wasn't sure which one I would uh, work with today or talk about today, but I think I'm going to join them together, actually. Um, and they were... Uh, the Eightfold Path Meditation has, uh, in the meditation aspect of the Eightfold Path, there are three aspects, and it's wise effort, wise uh, mindfulness, and wise concentration. And so I wanted to talk a, a bit about that. But I also wanted, I, the second possibility was to talk about the four foundations of mindfulness, which is the, uh, the, the sutta, the, the, the text, from which these instructions come and the basis on which we do uh, our meditation practice. So how many of you have heard anything about the Satipatthana Sutta? So, so very few. So I think that's a, that's a good thing. We'll talk about it. <clears throat> So I'll, I'll read a little bit from, so this is, this is uh, in the, the main text of the Theravada, the Theravada um, uh, tradition in which we practice is, uh, is this sutta called the Satipatthana Sutta. And it is the, uh, in some ways, the key discourse, because it sets up our whole practice. It tells us exactly how to practice. So it's a really important uh, text. And I just, it comes from a book called, this particular translation comes from a book called The Middle Length Discourses of the Buddha, a new translation of the Majjhima Nikaya, Bhikkhu Nanumoli and Bhikkhu Bodhi are the uh, translators. And I tell you that because sometimes you hear these texts and you hear them quite differently because some, many of the translations are quite different. Uh, the translators use different terms for the Pali terms. And it starts, thus have I heard, many of these suttas start in this way because uh, none of the uh, Buddha's discourses were ever written down during his lifetime or for 500 years after his lifetime. And uh, it, so it was, it's an oral tradition, and quite amazingly, his attendant, who was his cousin Ananda, uh, was the one who uh, had, he had, I guess, what we call these days a photographic memory, uh, except that it was a sonic memory. 
And uh, so he, he remembered the Buddha's suttas, and he, they, he, so he would repeat them, and he'd pass them down. Thus have I heard. The Blessed One was living in the Kuru County at a town of the Kuru's named uh, Kamasadama, and he addressed the bhikkhus, the monks, thus. He said this, Bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. That got my attention. Right? Did it get your, I think it probably got yours too when he says the surmounting of sorrow, the purification of beings, surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, the disappearance of pain and grief. Wow, that's amazing. Namely, the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? A bhikkhu abides contemplating the body. A bhikkhu will say is a meditator, so that includes all of us abides contemplating the body as a body. Ardent, so that's the first um, foundation, is a body. And then he tells us how, what our mind state should be in sitting down to do this. He says, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away, and this is important, having put away covetousness, and grief for the world. He abides contemplating feelings as feelings, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. So he's gone body, feeling, and later on in the sutta when he talks about feeling, it's not about emotions, it's about the tone of feelings that come with each experience, whether it's pleasant, as I discussed in the instruction, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, which we call the neutral. He abides contemplating feelings as feelings, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having, away, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He abides contemplating mind as mind, so the mind, so body, feelings, now mind. Ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. She abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects. This is a little strange uh, phrase, but in the Pali it's, it's uh, dharmas or dhammas. And what it means is that there are, eventually when he explains it, he explains it as... Um, in a way, seeing our world, seeing our, our world of experience through um, the lens of Dharma, the lens of the teachings that he's done. And so he says, uh, mind objects are um, the, fi- the five hindrances, the five aggregates, the six sense bases, uh, and the four noble truths. So it's in a way not only looking at your experience viscerally, but then eventually seeing uh, if we take the teachings in, to heart and we want to really test them, looking at our 
experience through the lens of those teachings. Ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. And I'm just going to give you the first uh, uh, section of the instructions, so, because the instructions repeat on each of these four foundations. So, I mean, and when he talks about the body, he talks about the body as the body, and then the four postures of the body, and then how to contemplate the body in the charnel ground, and all different ways of looking at the body. But I'm just going to give you the first paragraph of this. So the first is mindfulness of breathing. How does a bhikkhu abide contemplating the body as a body? Here, a bhikkhu, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his or her legs crosswise, set the body erect, and established mindfulness in front of, of her. So we, we go to the root of a tree or an empty hut. So he's saying, go to a quiet place. Right? We don't have so many roots of the trees in New York, or they might haul you away if you do it in New York, but unless you go to Central Park. But we can find a quiet place. Ever mindful, she breathes in. Mindful, she breathes out. Breathing in long, she understands I breathe in long. Breathing out long, he understands I breathe out long. Breathing in short, she understands I breathe in short. So you'll remember that I gave you those instructions. I sh she trains thus. I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body of breath. She trains thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body of breath. I shall breathe in, tran tranquilizing the bodily formation. So breathing in, calming the body. I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the bodily formation. Just as a skilled turner or his apprentice, when making a long turn, understands, I make a long turn, or when making a short turn, understands, I make a short turn, so too, breathing in long, a bhikkhu understands I breathe in long, etc. And then there is an insight in the sutta. In this way, she ab abides contemplating the body as a body internally, or they abide contemplating the body as a body externally. Now this is important or else abides contemplating in the body its arising factors, or its vanishing factors, or both its arising and vanishing factors, or else mindfulness that there is a body is established in them to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world, that is how a bhikkhu abides, contemplating the body as a body. And he uses the same language for all four foundations. Okay, so this is a lot I just gave you. So, so he, he says there's an insight because we, first we look at the body or feelings or mind or mind objects internally and externally. And this is, for me, 
one of the most important instructions that the Buddha gave in, in this root text, that we are not just sitting kind of like blobs of protoplasm, you know, watching the breath, but that there is a, there is a way in which in the, the meditation practice is very alive, it's very active, it's not a passive practice that if we're looking, if we're paying attention internally, that does not preclude paying attention externally. And I, I'm particularly in love with this, this insight because I think our culture has become quite narcissistic. If you drive a car, you will notice how narcissistic everybody is on the road. If you, if you ride the subway, you'll notice how everybody is jockeying for their own place and not paying attention to the needs of anyone else. It's almost as if, if I pay attention to anybody else's needs, I'm going to get trampled. And so the Buddha very explicitly said this meditation practice is a training. So, you know, when we talk, when we think about meditation as a kind of uh, stress reduction, we're totally looking at ourselves. We're totally going inward and saying, oh, this life is too much, I'm so stressed, I need, to, I need some stress reduction, and so let me meditate. But what that, what that precludes is the understanding that the meditation practice is a training. And it's a training to be constantly 360 degrees, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, being completely aware of what is happening internally and what is happening externally. And, and it does not mean that we are just being aware externally so that we can figure out you know, how we can jockey for our own position in, this, in the culture or in the subway or in, on the roads or whatever it is we're doing, but that we're beginning, hopefully, when we do that, to understand the key teaching of the Buddha, the key teaching of the Buddha, which is the, is, is the teaching of no self. And, what that, what, and that's a very profound teaching, which I'm not going to go into now, because we would take all day. But essentially, one of the things that we understand when we understand deeply that doctrine of what we call anatta in, in Pali, no self or not self, we begin to understand prof the profound interconnectedness of who we are in this world, that we are not separate, disconnected, and individual or singular in our life, but that essentially we are all one, as we sit here, we, it may seem like there are all of these separate bodies thinking their own separate thoughts and doing what they do and, you know, we're going to leave here and we're all going to disperse and it will feel as if we are separate and singular. But in fact, just coming together here, we profoundly affect each other. What would it be like if you were here alone? No teacher, no other students, no volunteers, just you. 
the experience would be quite different, wouldn't it? Very different. There's a way in which when we come together, we support each other. The fact that there are other people in the room probably prevents us from opening our eyes and getting up a little bit earlier than we intended to sit, right? We sort of said, I'm going to sit for 45 minutes and then, eh, a little boring. Eh, it's not working today. I think I'm going to go, right? But somehow, the support of everyone else really helps us to quiet the mind, to let that moment of boredom or frustration or anxiety or worry or just distractedness pass and to come back, to encourage ourselves to keep coming back to this full awareness in the present moment, which is what he is actually saying in this internal-external is a very deep teaching which we don't have time to completely um, plumb today. But it's, it's really, I just want to give it to you as a contemplation. What's it like to be mindful internally and externally? Right? And, and if you start that practice and you try to really, you know, so what's it like to see somebody else's breath? To hear someone else's breath. Right? So you're sitting in your meditation seat and your neighbor starts to snore. Right? Can you contemplate that as an external factor? And or or you hear the sounds. Can you contemplate the sounds and know when they, as he said, arise and when they vanish? That's an external contemplation, right? And what's it like for the body to actually hear it and to resonate with those sounds? So that our practice, if we really pay attention to the instructions, our practice becomes much deeper and much richer and has much more texture than simply, well, I'm here sitting and really trying to keep my mind on the breath. Damn it, what's that siren? Right? It's keeping me away from the. Oh, I could actually listen to the siren. Oh, it's piercing. Unpleasant. Oh, so now I've noticed feeling. As it goes away, it sounds as if it's vanishing. Wow, what arises vanishes. What comes into being also passes away from being. This is a this is an extremely deep profound insight into impermanence. So if we're paying attention, truly, with full awareness in the present moment, we're beginning to understand the world in a very different way, not from our conceptual thought, not from our way of uh, labeling everything. Oh, that's a car. Oh, that's a truck. Oh, those breaks are terrible. Oh, they're so loud and noisy. Why are they bothering my meditation? Right? Instead, we're hearing sound and we're hearing its, its, its appearing and vanishing factors, as the Buddha says. And we're noticing, oh, oh, that sound is like everything else in the universe coming and going. The breath is coming and going. No breath is the same as the breath before. Why is that? Because the breath before is now a memory. This breath now is completely different than the memory of the previous breath. 
So as we pay attention in this profound way, as we pay attention to the body, to the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, to the mind, this is a mind full of lust. What does that feel like? What does it actually feel like in the body? the mind to have lust for this or that. Maybe it could be ice cream, it doesn't have to be sex, right? Or for the sound to stop, or for um, someone to love me, or for the job, or whatever it is. What does it feel like? We get so absorbed in the object of that lust that we don't notice the amount of suffering that that lust in the body, lust in the mind, causes in the body and in the whole organism. But if we're paying attention in the present moment, and lust arises, and we notice, oh, this is a mind filled with lust, we get to study it. So this whole thing becomes a laboratory. The meditation isn't just, oh, I need to get calm, I need to get calm, I need to get calm, I need to get calm. It's, oh, if I really pay attention, I start to see the real nature of things. And I see the real nature of uh, the universe, how it's operating. I see the nature of this body. I see the nature of this mind. I see the nature of these emotions. And, and all and its relationship to everything else that I perceive to be externally but isn't real. So the internal and the external, and when he gives the instruction about internal and external, he gives the instruction that we look internally, we look externally, and we look internally and externally. Now the only thing I can figure, the, the only reason he would say it three times is because he wants to emphasize internally, oh, what's happening here? Externally, what's happening there. And when he says internally and externally, it's what's the relationship, right? So our entire experience becomes our laboratory. And the meditation practice becomes one of profound meaning and a profound uh, possibility and potential for complete transformation. As he says, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness for the world, and mindfulness is established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge. And they abide independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And we know from the second noble truth that clinging is the cause of suffering. So if we're not clinging to anything in the world, guess what? We're not suffering. It's kind of magic, isn't it? If you know anything about the Buddha's teachings, you begin to see how it's put together kind of like a Rubik's Cube. Right? 
and I and I use the I use the Rubik cube intentionally because it's so complex. But it's actually possible to get it all in alignment. If we really work on it, we begin to get all of the colors, you know, the yellow is on one side, the red's on one side, etc. And it's the same with our with this lab that we're working with that we can um, navigate the complexity and as we navigate the complexity we begin to understand the structure of reality and if we can understand the structure of reality we become aligned with it so the practice is a profound practice and um, this is what he says at the end of this sutta. Bhikkhus, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven years, one of two fruits could be expected for them, either final knowledge here and now, or if there's a trace of clinging left, non-return. Well, I'm, I'm not going to go into all of that. Those are the different levels of um, possibility with um, either coming back into this life or not coming back at all because we attain final freedom. But we we won't get there because that's a whole other story. And then he says, let alone seven years or six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, those two fruits could be expected. And then he says, if you should develop it for seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month, this could still, you could still expect it. Half a month, seven days, or seven days, that's it. He just says seven days. He doesn't go further than that. He doesn't say like a couple of minutes. Um, so it is, it was with reference to this that it was said, bhikkhus, this is the direct path, the direct path for the purification of beings for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation. Surmounting of sorrow and lamentation. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? Contemplate that for a moment. What would it be like to live a life in which we had completely surmounted sorrow and lamentation? What would it take for the disappearance, the disappearance, of pain and grief. For the attainment of the true way. For the realization of Nibbana. So this is, this is what can be expected, the Buddha said, if you enter into this narrow path that essentially the meditative path, which is only three parts of the Eightfold Path, sets the groundwork for wisdom and for integrity 
and eventually for freedom, for freedom from suffering and actual total unbinding of the heart. So I'm going to close because I want to give you time to ask questions or to to make comments with this quote from John Donne, who is a, a, a Christian poet. I throw myself down in my chamber and invite God and his angels hither. And when they are there, I neglect God and his angels for the noise of a fly for the rattling of a coach, and for the whining of a door. Sound familiar? Right? There you are in this amazing practice where he's basically said this will surmount sorrow, lamentation, and grief, and pain. And we're annoyed by the fly buzzing around our head, right? And we're totally ignoring what the practice done sincerely and skillfully can actually bring us to. We live in the midst of this incredible beauty and mystery. And it really is wonderful to start there in the understanding. There is so much pain in this human body and this human life. And yet, there is underlying it a beauty and a mystery and there's we have a vast potential for awakening vast potential for awakening and yet over and over and over and over again we give our lives to distraction and this meditation practice becoming ubiquitous in our society and threatening to be reduced to a kind of technique is not that. It's a profound practice that if done with sincerity and curiosity, commitment, not, well, I'll meditate five minutes today and maybe next week I'll do another ten. But in a consistent and constant way gives us great uh, potential for awakening and an understanding of our vast potential for freedom that this heart can actually unbind. There's a a Mahayana text that says, the world is in a tangle. Who will untangle the tangle? We are the ones that will untangle the tangle. But but it's it's too complex and profound for us to think that a kind of, as in my husband's English, and they they use the, the, the phrase, a slap and a tickle, right? Our meditation practice can't just be a slap of the tickle. It needs to have real uh, practice and a really deep understanding of the profundity of its potential. And so that's what I wish for you. I wish for you that your practice develops 
your complete and full potential. And that you do surmount sorrow, lamentation, pain, despair, and grief. And it's not because it promises that the life will be perfectly without bumps or without any kind of uh, difficulty or complexity in our relationships and in our just daily living, going about our business in this body. Those will come. But what is beautiful is that with a sincere and committed practice, we, we begin to learn, we begin to tear away the veils that um, lie to us about the structure of the universe and the reality, the, the, the true reality of the universe. We begin to see it for ourselves, not because the Buddha said it or a teacher said it, but because our practice actually shows us what it means to be human and alive in this world. It shows us the importance of kindness, the importance of compassion and the power of love, and that there is no substitute for visceral wisdom. And it all stems from this beautiful practice that you you all did so well this morning. So thank you. May you continue. And if you have any questions or comments, I'm happy to hear them. And please give me your name before you. Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi. Um, just uh, hearing what you're saying um, throughout, throughout the whole talk, starting with the mind and the body and then talking about um, internal and external, um, the more I do this, the more I think in order to, I want to say, be, think about... Um, this idea of no self, it seems to me that the idea of internal and external would almost be indistinguishable and also the idea of mind and body would be indistinguishable also. And I was just just mm. something that occurred to me and I was mm. appreciating any feedback. Mm, sure. Yeah, so, you know, the mystery, right? All of that is true. And yet, there is a relative body, right, that's sitting here, yum, 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 right? And there is also a, a, a metaphysical body that is connected to all things and doesn't, uh, like energy, isn't created or destroyed, but just continues in its, in its way, in whatever form it, it has. But we have to be careful, right? So with that beautiful insight that you are beginning to open up to, what can happen sometimes is we, bypass, we have what we call a spiritual bypass, right? Which is to say, well, there's no self. So it doesn't matter if I steal this thing, right? Because who's stealing it? Nobody's stealing it because there's no stuff, right? Or um, 
or that we um, start to look at the pain, our own pain and the pain of others as insignificant, right? Because there's no self. So you get over yourself, right? It's like racism sometimes. You know, people talk about racism as if it's a thing and not true impact and feeling for individual human beings. Or they say, I don't see color, right? There's no difference. We're just all humans together. And we're all one. So what's the problem, right? And yet there's real significant oppression, pain, systemic um, problem. So we, so you know, every, what's beautiful about the Buddha is he, you know, said it's the middle. He called it the middle way. So can we be in the middle of understanding there is a relative body sitting here that has. Um, doesn't have the same reality as what we perceive or think it, is, it has. That it's insubstantial, it's impermanent, it's moving, it's dynamic, it doesn't, it, there's no place that we can stand where we say, that's it, that's who I am. And, the, and have our um, understanding in the absolute, and yet have the compassion to understand the relative world too full of its pain and its degradation and its injustice and how we interact with the environment is part of that also so it's tricky you know but your insight is also correct that the internal and the external then begin to merge that they're really, you know, it's a convenience to see what's going on in here. This body is internal, and what's out there other than this body is external. But then we're making a self and other. So how does all of that, you know, to, to really keep observing, to see how all of that plays out in your own experience. What happens when I'm understanding there's an internal and external. And what happens when I'm understanding there is no internal and there's no external? Both are true. And how do I then live? Where do I plant my feet? And do I need to plant my feet? Maybe I don't need to plant my feet, right? And not let that drive you crazy. But to, to be, you know, really attentive to your child while understanding all children are my children. And yet, knowing the love you have for this child, what's that like? And so having the love for this child is not wrong. But not understanding that this child is every child is also not wrong. Hmm? You're welcome.
So you're all quiet, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to make you talk to each other, and since you won't talk to me. So what I'd like you to do is just find a partner, someone in your neighborhood, and uh, I'm going to give you um, just three minutes each to talk about what you've learned, what you heard. You may not have learned anything. Maybe you knew all of this already. But just to talk about what you've heard and any way in which it, um, it hits you viscerally and, and whether or not there is a commitment you can make to yourself for your own practice. Okay? So if you find your partner, just turn to your partner and don't start until I tell you to because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to time you. Let's just sit for a moment, just close your eyes, feel what the vibration of, if you were speaking, what it felt like to speak, what that now feels like in your body in the present moment. Or if you were a listener, how it was to listen. And were you able to sit and still be present for yourself or did you go out to listen? And what, what is it like now to have listened, to have heard? Are there all kinds of ideas running around your head, or are you contemplating, now I'm going to have to talk? And can you just kind of settle back into this moment, and the kind of contentment with just how it is right now? Not what you heard, or what you're about to say, or what you said and you're about to hear, but just savoring this moment right now and feeling the body as a body, as the Buddha says. Feeling the posture, feeling the breath. And as you go into the next one, I didn't give you a lot of instruction because I wanted you to just do what you do. But in this next, where, where the person with the longer hair is now going to speak, if you're speaking, speak from the heart, speak honestly, speak truthfully. Feel your body while you're speaking. And if you're listening, can you listen while still being in your body, still knowing how your body is, what sensations are coming up in the body? and not going so out into the external, into your partner, which, of course, you have to listen, but also pay most of the attention to what is happening internally. And see if you can actually hear clearly while feeling your own body. Okay. So the next person speaks.
And we have five minutes for any comment or there's a que another question. Thinking about things or experiencing the world internally and externally. Um, I've been working with equanimity a lot. I wonder if this is something that really helps develop the practice of equanimity, We're trying to get unstuck from the mud. What do you mean by un unstuck from the mud? Um, being mired in, in, in patterns that you want to get out of. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and just feeling a lot of suffering, trying mm -hmm. to be using equanimity to position yourself so you can so I, so I guess I can move uh, a little more freely, mm -hmm. less pain. From pain? Less pain, yeah. Less pain. Yeah. Less pain. Or anxiety. Well, that's what the Buddha promises, right? Right. Surmounting of pain, sorrow, and lamentation. So, the internal and external, I, I think any of these practices bring us to insight, right? If we're really doing them sincerely, we're not just kind of giving them, as I said, a slap and a tickle, but we're actually plumbing down, we're, you know, we're, we're in the depths of the practice, which isn't always pleasant, right? Because sometimes when we actually, to get an insight, we need to wade into the waters of the pain or the difficulty. And what happens when we do that with presence is we start to see it differently. It's not necessarily, um, you know, I, I always worry about not using language that makes people think that meditation is going to get rid of the pain. What I think it does no. What I've experienced that it does is it transforms it. So that the difficulty of life doesn't change, but how we experience it changes. And what our relationship to it changes is changes. And in and so when you when you say equanimity as a practice to help you surmount sorrow or pain. Um, yes, that's, that's a possible thing because what equanimity does is it allows us to accept things just as they are. You know, the, the equanimity practice in the Brahma Vihara practices is the phrase that says, um, all beings are heirs to their karma. And when we say that, it's very different than the kind of pop culture idea of karma, you know. You, you did it, and you're going to get it back. That's not it. But that our karma actually means action. So that all beings are heirs to their karma, all beings are heirs to their actions. So their happiness, the rest of the phrase is, their happiness or unhappiness does not depend upon my wishes for them but upon their own choices and actions. So we begin to understand, oh, this is how things are, and they come to be out of a complex set of causes. 
right? Not just what my actions are, but my actions in the internal and in the external, and how they then um, blend with other actions in the in the field, and they create consequences, right? So if I really understand that, which is the equanimity practice of understanding, oh, things come to be not, they're not independently arising, that everything is dependently arisen on what has gone before and what is happening now. When that happens, when we begin to understand that clearly, the pain and sorrow may still appear, but it doesn't have the same hold on us. We don't feel victimized by it. We don't feel as if, oh, you know, or we think, if I'm not to blame, then somebody else is to blame, right? Then we go out looking, we scan the horizon for who we can pin it on, right? Which is a lot of what we do in our culture. So, yeah, you can use the equanimity practice as part of uh, the whole landscape of your practice. Um, and in, certainly in meditation, when painful memories arise, which they do sometimes when the mind really gets still, we can see it, with, if we see it with equanimity, the reactivity disappears. And we're not making ourselves not react, we're simply relating in a way, in an equanimous way, to what is arising. And because of that shift in the relationship, the experience becomes different. Does that? And, and it does relate to the internal and the external, too. You know, and what we were talking about before, I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Behind you. Ken. What Ken and I were talking about before, that, um, you know, it starts to merge, really, when we really look, when we really understand the experience. Does that help, Tim? Great. Okay. Uh, Kali, you can come up and ask the question, because we're, we have to close its time. But I, saw, I know that you had a question, so... It, at, when we're done. It's okay. So let's just be quiet for a moment. And feel the, the goodness of the practice that you've done in such beautiful uh, sincerity today. And know that when we practice this way and we reflect in the way we've been reflecting today, that a field of goodness arises. In, the, in Buddhist language, we call it a field of merit. We've created merit. And what we traditionally practice with, with merit, is giving it away. We're not holding it to ourselves. We're not saying, oh, great, I got all this merit and this is going to make my life better. But we really understand that, all, that this merit should be shared by all beings. 
So we dedicate the merit of this practice to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being, and the awakening of all beings everywhere without exception. Sending our deep wishes that all beings be happy and peaceful, safe and secure, away from harm and danger, that all beings have health of body and mind, and that all beings be free, and be free from suffering. We practice not for our own benefit alone, but for the benefit of all beings. And so just take a moment to think of anyone in your circle who is particularly suffering or having um, an illness or is dealing with sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. And send them that wish and dedicate the merit of your practice to their happiness. And bow to your own practice and to yourself for having come here today with the intention and fulfilling the intention to practice and to reflect. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.